Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, guys, I know you treat your pets like family, so why not insure them like it? Protect against the unexpected with Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. With Trupanion's ability to pay your veterinarian directly with their software, you won't have to worry about paying unexpected vet bills out of pocket. And if you're a breeder, Trupanion also offers a program allowing you to send your litters home with a special offer. Let's them try medical insurance for pets. And last year, the Trupanion policy paid out over seven and a half million dollars in claims for the pets that were part of this program. From toy ingestion to heart murmurs, they've covered it. Learn more about the Breeder Support Program through the partner link on my page and let them know Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I have one of my very favorite people come back to join us again. Denise Flame is a longtime Rhodesian Ridgeback breeder. We spoke to her about that. We also spoke to her about her new book that she had out a few months ago. And today we are going to talk about one of Denise's passions, which is the Molosser breeds. And this is such a great group of dogs. And so I'm very excited to talk to Denise about the really special characteristics that go with this. Do we think of them as like a family? Family. family. Okay, beautiful. So talk to us, Denise. Tell us about who's in this family. Okay, well, first of all, kudos and points to you for pronouncing it, not saying Molosser or Molosseraptor or all the various <laughs> permutations of that. So they're Molossers. And the name comes from ancient Greece. There was a dog called the Molossian or the Molossus dog, and it was reputed to be very large in size, equally as ferocious. All of the ancient scribes and historians wrote about this Molosser dog, and the Romans acquired them, legend has it, and they fought in the Colosseums, and they were used as war dogs. And so any breed that has like the slightest Mastiff flavor to it claims the Molosser as its ancient forefather. And right. we don't know because our pedigrees don't go back 2,000 years. But what it's come to mean today is a group of dogs, some of them related, some not, or only distantly, that have certain physical characteristics. Great bone for their size, thick skin, oftentimes wrinkled, but not always, right. a role that involved being a guardian of people or property or sometimes livestock, imposing large heads, oftentimes with muzzles that are slightly shorter than the length of skull, but not always. So that's kind of the phenotype of a molosser. And what's kind of interesting is there are some molosser breeds that don't want to be called molosser. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to the FCI group two list and you read all of the breeds that they characterize as molossers, like boxers and rottweilers and great danes. I would think that most people in those breeds, I know from talking to them, don't consider themselves molossers. So there's sort of a family and a group of breeds that kind of consider themselves part of this family. And that list would include mastiffs and bull mastiffs and dog de Bordeaux, Neapolitan mastiffs, Connie Corsos, Dogo Argentinos, Borbles, and such. 
So the one that I was trying to think, and it doesn't really fit, but it kind of does, would be the St. Bernard. So the St. Bernard, remember several years ago, we had the group realignment. Right. Discussion. It never happened. <laughs> right, right. And there was a proposal for a Molosser group. Right. And my interest in these breeds goes back to the mid-2000s when I founded a magazine called Modern Molosser, which was a print magazine for many years and now exists on the internet, modernmolosser.com, which sort of has just lots of stories on these breeds. And the St. Bernard people, when I interviewed them at the time, were perfectly okay with being in a Molosser group. They're kind of on the edge because they don't have a protection role. Right. But clearly, phenotypically, they check off a lot of boxes. Right. That's why I was curious. I'm like, where does this fall? They were comfortable. And they are actually a protection breed in the most benign sense. (laughs) They're protecting you from the avalanche. (laughs) So that kind of works. But there are some breeds, I remember very early on approaching the Leon Burger people, you know, when we had the magazine to see if they wanted to be represented. And they were horrified at (laughs) being in that group. Because, well, they're also, while they are are a large bone breed, they don't have thick skin. They don't have the wrinkling. They're a Bichon in a Mastiff suit. Right. They have a companion function. And they culturally do not consider themselves philosophers. And we're going to get to this a little bit later, the concept of breed culture. But I wanted to stick with the Molossers for a minute. So the Neos, the Dog de Bordeaux, all of these that have as you say, joined this family over the course of our time in dogs that didn't exist. You know, I was in 4-H, it was a Mastiff and a Bull Mastiff. Well, they didn't exist. They didn't exist in the American Kennel Club and in my chart that I was supposed to name them all. (laughs) So talk to us a little bit about how these breeds and families have differentiated themselves. So What's really interesting about these breeds is there are many breeds that you can be involved in and have no awareness of any related breed because they're not that physically, phenotypically, they're not impinging on you. The Molosser breeds, and I'm always very impressed by the Molosser breeders because they're hard to breed. Many of them are of a size or a scope in terms of bone and substance that's very difficult to achieve. And many of them are head breeds, for lack of a better term, because their heads and certain aspects of their bodies, the differential between one breed and another can be pretty minor. And so, for example, Neapolitan Mastiffs and Connie Corsos, head planes in those two breeds are incredibly important. Neos are parallel planes and Connie Corsos are convergent. And if you have a Corso with parallel planes, you're starting to go down the slippery slope of losing type. So in those breeds, the fine points are important in all breeds, but they're super important in those because there's so much interrelation. So talk about the history because I love, you're such a great person for history. This is one of the things I love to pick your brain about. And so the history of the Molossus dog in Greece and Rome And it comes to the Mastiff and then the Bull Mastiff and then the Neapolitan Mastiff and the Cane Corso. So Neapolitan and Cane Corso, both from Italy. So there's regional, there's national. That stuff is really fascinating to me. So who knows is the answer. You know, there used to be this, and I think you can call it a wives' tale now, that the Tibetan Mastiff was the mother of all Mastiff breeds. And we Uh, know from genetic research that every region of the world 
For example, in Britain, the Mastiff evolved separately from the Tibetan Mastiff, that every kind of culture of dogs, right. every group of dogs, there are, are little archetypes that keep popping up. And so a Sighthound right. archetype pops up and a Mastiff archetype pops up. Germans went a lot of times to Britain. We don't know because no one was there to do a video and post to Facebook. So we have no idea. <laughs> Nothing but, got posted um, to Facebook? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> right. It didn't happen. So many of these breeds are also one derived from another. I mean, bull mastiffs are a great example. Like the right. classic formula is 60% mastiff and 40% bulldog. Right. And so in bull mastiffs, you're always watching silhouette. They should be square because when they start to get elongated, now you're drifting off into mastiff land. And then similarly, you can get too bulldoggy. So you're always looking for that sweet spot. And again, that's why I really credit these breeders because these are not easy breeds to breed. And head type is so important. And they have much less room for error than those of us perhaps with some hound or sporting breeds where eh, you could give a little on head if you get the other things you want. With them, they don't have that luxury. And I think the other thing about the Molossa breeds and I'm thinking of the Neapolitan Mastiff in this respect, mm -hmm. but I think there are other breeds. There is an incredible lack of respect for many of these breeds. You know, this idea of Ooh, the Neo, you know, and immediately dismissing it as sort of this melted ice cream cone of a dog that drools and nobody wants to touch it. And as usual, people make fun of things that they don't understand. And, right. you know, across the ocean, the ability to judge that breed and breed that breed is considered the height of connoisseurship in dogs. Interesting. Yeah, are amazing dogs. And I think some of it possibly is cultural because I think in America, our idiom is an idiom of loftiness and verticality and expansion. And the Neapolitan Mastiff is an old world breed. It's a breed that talks to us at roots of dogs is music. The Neapolitan Mastiff is opera. It's an aria. It's primal. It's about all those earthy emotions. There was a Saluki breeder named Rhoda Winter Russell, and she compared in terms of dance, the sighthounds to ballet, ethereal, lofty, very buoyant, and the, the Neapolitan Mastiff to modern dance, very earthbound, very solitary. It's a completely different way to look at the breed. Continue on with that, because I love the concept of the old world versus new world, the earthbound, the Neapolitan Mastiff as earth and old world and the U.S. and the Americas as that lofty, more... It's the Empire State Building. It's about yes. verticality and limitless possibility and not being tied to anything that was, being able to reinvent yourself. Whereas this is a breed that's about the opposite of that. It's about the ages and about our deepest roots and about the nightmares that we conjure up at night. And it's just a completely different mindset. And I also think in terms of that breed in particular, as I said, they're really difficult to breed. And so when those dogs become extreme, it's a challenge. And I think the breed's in great shape now. But I think there was a period mm. when people went for hypertype, not a term we use a lot here, but it's used abroad with right. frequency. And, you know, that breed's really interesting. Wrinkle is obviously very important in that breed. I mean, in the absence of it is a DQ. But the quality of wrinkle in that breed is something that people don't talk about enough, I think, because I was always taught that a Neapolitan Mastiff's wrinkles should be like your grandmother's old upholstered couch. They should oh, be wow. stiff. They should not have mobility to them. And these dogs that you see with very flaccid, drooping skin is not correct. 
you know, when you see the correct wrinkle, which then keeps the skin out of their eyes because it's not right. It's not melting into their face. Right. It's a completely different dog. There was a breeder in Italy. He had a very famous line of dogs called Di Ponzano. And in fact, one of his dogs won the world dog show when it was held in Spain. Can you imagine a Neo besting something like 6,600 all breed entries? Wow. And he was a textile maker and he's the one that actually standardized the wrinkles in the breed and said, okay, this is what we want. We want this wrinkle on the outside of the eyelid and so forth. And I think really now in terms of Neapolitan Mastiffs, the quality in the breed is really, really good. And people should go look at them again through the prism of this is an old world breed. Recalibrate yourself. The dog shouldn't adjust to you and your preferences. You should adjust to the dog, its history, its culture, and its type. And that to me is so much part of our conversation about preservation breeding. We kind of hit the tip of the spear when we talk about we need to make them able to participate in today's world. And yet (laughs) we are preserving that old world type. And so I do believe that as judges, we need to look at that preservation of type and understand that there's a line. And I think that I'd be very curious to hear from people in the Neapolitan Mastiff world about how they're making that connection between the old world and the new world. I think with these breeds, Molossa breeds or otherwise, and now we're sort of venturing into breed culture. Every breed is its own country with its own language, its own traditions, its own culture. And what you don't want to do is be like the stereotypical American tourist with the socks and sandals and the guidebook clenched in your hands with a real superficial understanding of whatever breed you're bumbling into. And because what is the norm in the Neapolitan Mastiff world might be completely different from the Dog de Bordeaux world, might be completely different from the Dogo Argentina world. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that connects those breeds is there is so much cross-pollination genetically. And it's not like just the obvious stuff like the bull mastiff having right mastiff blood in its name all that screams that to you. But you know, for example, the mastiff, which is a breed that has gone to the brink of extinction during the last World War, certainly and beforehand. You know, there is a and I know this because I went to the American Chemical Library, opened the stud book and confirmed it with my own eyes. You know, there's a dog de Bordeaux right there in the middle of the Mastiff pedigree. You know, interesting. Yes. I don't know the circuit, but there the dog is, and it's clearly a dog de Bordeaux, have been reconstituted so many times and brought back from the brink of extinction. You do that by introducing other breeds just because you don't have enough genetic material to carry on. And so there's right. ostensibly, nobody knows. I mean, the dog de Bordeaux example is the exception in that it's actually documented, but then there are all these other mm-hmm. freshening of the pot that's not documented. And there are those that say right. that the fluffs and the piebalds that exist in Mastiffs are the result of St. Bernard blood, which is kind of a mm-hmm. logical cross that you would make if right. you needed to sort of. And there's a really wonderful story about Mastiffs, about the deer run kennel. Yes. I would love for you to share with us some of this because I mean, this is original work on your part when you were working as an actual newspaper reporter. And this is really good stuff. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. 
check it. Dog events are happening. For exhibitors who are able and willing to attend these events, it feels as if our tribe has been reunited once again. Meanwhile, for folks who are continuing to feel safest staying at home and away from crowds, and for folks who are driving long haul between far-flung events, I gotcha. I've been working hard to bring you all podcast episodes that help you feel connected to our larger community and offer opportunities for education and entertainment, no matter how you have managed through this truly overwhelming year. One of my favorite events this year is the monthly virtual Pure Dog Talk After Dark for patrons of our podcast. Anybody can join this fabulous community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking on the Become a Patron link on the homepage. And while you're there zooming around on the site, you might think about checking out our shopping tab too. We've linked dog show vendors from all around the country so you can help support them during this really grueling loss of income suffered due to a lack of events. There's even a swag link that lets you order your Pure Dog Talk t-shirt, sweatshirt, fan case, mask, <laughs> ringside towel, and so much more. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. So check out the links at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. So tell us a little so bit. So Deer about Run that. is a very famous Mastiff kennel based in Frenchtown, New Jersey. It is so ubiquitous that something like 95% of the world's pedigrees contain Deer Run blood. I mean, it's almost impossible. And there are some that would argue that that's far too low an estimate. It's more like 99%. Wow. And Deer Run was a kennel that belonged to a man named Tobin Jackson. He was from Massachusetts originally. And he basically on this farm in Frenchtown, New Jersey, created some of the world's most amazing top-winning mastiffs. And it was a huge operation with as many as 200 dogs on the property at a given time. And I visited it long after it had been abandoned, but the house that was the center of operation still stands. He didn't live in the house. The house had been converted to a series of kennels. You know, the fireplace boarded up and there were all these runs off of the house. And he lived in a trailer on site. And he arrived in the breed at a time when the dogs had beautiful heads and looked like, as one handler told me, seals crossing the ring. I mean, it wasn't a great deal of soundness in the breed. And he slowly introduced soundness. The dogs, if you look back at the photos, lost a little bit of head type, but they became very, very sound. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they regained type. And there are lots of theories about how that happened. But whatever these breedings were that produced these dogs, no one ever saw them. So there's no proof. (laughs) 
you know, he was just a master breeder. And does the end justify the means? However, he managed to reconstitute the breed and create this incredibly beautiful and sound mastiff. Does it matter how he got there? It's an interesting question. And it's an interesting question of, you know, none of our breeds are pure. (laughs) It's this delusion that we, you know, when they had, they started somewhere that didn't come out of the head of Zeus as mythologies. So I don't know, maybe the Saluki maybe came from the head of Zeus. (laughs) Possibly, right. And the Saluki people would tell you that definitively. But yeah, so many of our breeds are sort of amalgamations. And sometimes there is a whole school of thought. And this is heretical, but bears thinking about when the American Kennel Club began to DNA test dogs, did that sort of make our gene pools even more brackish? You know, these occasional oopses that nobody knew about, did they infuse breeds with a degree of genetic diversity that on whole were beneficial? We don't know. Right. You know, do we seem to be finding more and more problems with our dogs because we're looking at health problems? Or is it because now they truly are in gene pools that are constrained more than they were in the past. Who knows? Bigger minds than all. (laughs) Bigger minds than either you or I, I know. Well, and I look at my breed, for example, the German wire-haired pointer. The stud book on that breed was open until the 60s in Germany. You can look at the pedigrees. It's very clear. And the Germans, when they developed this breed, said very clearly, breed as you like, but tell what you did and be honest. Mm. And it was entirely focused on function. And so we know a whole lot of what went into this breed, but well. (laughs) Right. And well, you know, there are some breeds, going back to molasses for a minute, that were reconstituted and resurrected relatively recently. And so certain dogs were used to fill in the blanks. They just didn't have enough genetic material. And so, you know, when I judge corsos, pay a lot of attention to heads because, again, the head is really important. And you can see glimpses of Bomastiff and glimpses of Great Dane and glimpses of Neo, yes. you know, when you're judging yes. them. And it's just not easy. It's not easy. You know, that's a breed that's relatively new and it hasn't been standardized as much as older breeds. And so, again, my hat's off to those breeders. These are not easy breeds to breed. You are a perfect person to have this conversation with. So talking about seeing different glimpses of the breeds that were used to develop a certain breed, for example, the Conan Corso. So it's not used to develop. It's used to stabilize and reconstitute. They're not adding these breeds to evolve. They're just trying to solidify and preserve and stabilize the breed. Okay. So like bring back from the brink of extinction after World War II sorts of situations. Right. Okay. Talk about the drag of the breed. So what is it that is going to be in X, Y, or Z breed reminiscent of those either salvation or foundation or what you're trying to move away from in a breeding program. That's what I think of and understand as drag of the breed. Your thoughts? So let's use the bulldog because the bulldog is present in a lot of these breeds, certainly the bull mastiff and the dog de Bordeaux. So some of these breeds I think of as a spectrum of bulldogginess. We know from the bull mastiff history and standard that the proportion for that breed is 60% mastiff, 40% bulldog. And then you go over to the dog de Bordeaux, which the front loaded shape of that breed, the pear shape, it is much more of a bulldog influence. Right. 
when is more is not more? When is it too much? When you start to see teeth jutting out in front, when the bites get too undershot. Again, Dog de Bordeaux is an incredible breed and it's an incredible difficult breed to breed because you want that upsweep of chin and that layback of nose, which gives you the breed's frank expression, that sour mug expression, which is so important to type. And so you need that bulldog influence to get that upsweep and that width of jaw, but you don't want it to be so much that it starts looking like a bulldog. So many of these molosser breeders, their margin of error is much narrower in terms of achieving type. And though the dogs themselves are very strong, the type itself is delicate because if you begin to lose one particular feature, it can really alter the type of the dog. Right. I just love listening to people when they are describing a breed about which I don't know a lot. And they are able to tell me what is the drag of the breed. So for example, it's a bull mastiff that's too bulldoggy or a dog to Bordeaux that's too bulldoggy. So that concept is, I think, really important when you start learning new breeds to you or new families or new styles of dogs, wouldn't you think? I think it really helps to understand, particularly in this family of dogs, because again, they're so connected. It helps to know your neighbor, right? <laughs> I mean, between a Neo and a Connie Corso, I mean, they are two separate and distinct breeds. There are some people that just argue that you make a dog wetter and it becomes a Neo and you dry it out and get rid of some of that wrinkle and bone and you've got a Corso. And I don't believe that to be true because Rudolph Valentino had Connie Corsos in Hollywood in the 1930s that you could probably bring in the ring today and win with. Wow. Yeah. And they're from two completely different areas in Italy. And I do believe that they're two completely different breeds, but there are similarities. And so really that's where knowing the details of type are really important because the last thing you want to do with any breed, but very much with these breeds is to be generic. Okay. So this is perfect timing. I just was sent this quote literally right before we got on this interview from a friend, mutual friend, I'm sure, talking about a photo for an ad that she's going to use. And it's quoting Alva Rosenberg. And it says, we should know what breed it is at midnight in the dark of the moon, on top of the picket fence, by the silhouette. Mm -hmm. And I think that just speaks so much to what we're saying, that those details matter and that top line matters and that head shape matters and that proportion matters and all of those things matter. Absolutely. And you can, especially with the molasses breeds on heads alone, we could spend an hour talking about stops. <laughs> right. Really. And why right. does the Borable have the stop that it has as opposed to the Connie Corso, as opposed to any of these other breeds? Like you can really literally spend an hour because that stop in those yeah. breeds dictate where the rest of the head goes. And right. so if they're not right, you're on that slippery slope of losing type. Right. The Borable is another one that I think is a fascinating, fascinating breed. So talk a little, because I know I've only ever seen like four and mostly they were in Orlando. So talk to us a little bit about this breed, because I think it really is a fascinating one. So it's the South African Mastiff, yep. and it is a breed that hasn't really been standardized for very long. The Boers, the Dutch settlers in South Africa, developed this breed over hundreds of years. South Africa, thanks to the diamond mines, to the De Beer mines, imported lots of dogs because they wanted patrol dogs. They tried Ridgebacks out for a while and bred them, and I've seen the stud books that show that they 
produced lots of Ridgebacks. And then they also imported bull mastiffs at a time when the breed was just starting to take off in England. And they've imported some very good ones. So there's a lot of bull mastiff blood in South Africa and has been available for quite some time. And so that breed had a lot of genetic contribution to the Borbel. So we talked before about bull mastiffs and dog de Bordeaux and that spectrum of bulldogginess. Right. And so I would put the Borbel right in between the two. It's more bulldoggy right. than a bull mastiff, but not as bulldoggy as a dog de Bordeaux. Yes. And so it's a breed that there's a lot of variation. You know, you will find houndier borbles that sort of look like Ridgebacks on steroids. Mm-hmm. You'll find some mastiffy borbles. And what you want in the borble, first of all, that neck. Right. I don't think there is a neck that is as powerful as the neck on a borable in terms of its width and you want that sort of arch to the mm. neck. This is a powerful, powerful dog. And, and then, you know, to make things even more difficult, these poor molosser breeders. So you want this dog that has a decent amount of bulldog influence, but you want a scissors bite on it, right? Horrible. You know, I mean, you can have undershot, but the bite they call for is the scissors bite. Wow. So good wow. luck. I mean, yeah, good luck. The dog of Argentina is another breed that its body is certainly has bone and substance, but that's a breed that, you know, has to trot. Yeah. It has a more mesomorphic body than it does the body of a mastiff, but then they want a molosser head on it. You know, again, it's a tall order and people do it. You're killing me here, people. But, you know, appreciate what these breeders have to go through because it's not easy. Absolutely. In many cases, they're actually arm wrestling mother nature, both in terms of the size and the bone and some of these head requirements and bite requirements. They're not easy to get and even harder to keep. So tremendous respect and props to those breeders because you've really got to be dedicated. You know, many of our hound breeds and sporting breeds are a walk in the park in terms of breeding. By comparison. Yeah, to these molosser breeds. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, one of these days we're going to have to do a series. I'm super excited. I'm just decided we're going to do this. One of these days we're going to do a series and we're going to do compare and contrast some of these like a judge's ed kind of compare and contrast. Those are fascinating conversations to me. We do them for wire hairs and griffons. Mm. And so this would be some of the type of stuff I'd love to have that conversation. I mean, we do it with coon hands all the time, right? Because it's obvious. But yeah, the molosters really lend themselves to that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Irish wolfhound and Scottish deerhound. I mean, <laughs> you've got to be able to tell them apart. Right. Ideally, so, yes. <laughs> ideally, you need to be able to tell them apart. It's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good thing. All right. Well, Denise, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. As always, yes, our conversations are so fascinating and make me think. And I know they bring new thoughts and ideas to our listeners. So thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. 
They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.